This is Crane's Daily Gist. I'm Amy Guth. On this episode of the podcast, North Chicago drug maker AbbVie moves to help Illinois ramp up COVID-19 testing. We'll talk about that and other stories coming up on the podcast today. But first, this word from our sponsor. Your health and well-being are top of mind right now, and that includes your financial security. Wintrust Mortgage can help. They provide refinance solutions so you can take advantage of low rates to reduce payments. And they have the sophisticated technology to let you go through the process conveniently from home. Uncertainty can add stress to an already tense time. Rely on Wintrust Mortgage. Visit wintrustmortgage.com slash refi. Wintrust Mortgage is a division of Barrington Bank and Trust Company, N.A., and MLS number 449042, equal housing lender. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com SBL. All right. Well, it's Thursday, and so it's time for our weekly check-in on the residential real estate market with Cranes reporter Dennis Rodkin. Hello. Welcome back, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well. So there is a story that you have out today that I think is really interesting. You and I have been talking so much about how various sectors of business have been adapting to the pandemic. And here's another example of that, of how mortgage lenders are adapting. Well, it's essentially sort of a tightening up of a rule that has existed for quite a while in the wake of COVID-19. We know, of course, that tens of millions of people have lost their jobs. Others have taken big pay cutbacks. Mortgage lenders want to be sure that in the time that it has taken between you applying for your mortgage and you getting your mortgage, closing on your mortgage post-COVID-19 cutback, your income hasn't changed. A lot of people apply for a mortgage well in advance of when they actually need it. You want to show a buyer that you have a pre-approved loan because then you don't have any kind of financing contingency in your contract. You also want to know exactly how much you can afford. So people get the mortgage approval well in advance of closing it. So if I got my mortgage approved prior to this crisis, and now I'm going to close it in the midst of this crisis, can I still afford the mortgage? So I'm having to say before closing, I'm having to find forms that say before closing, my income has not been hit. So this is a form that you filled out anyway. In the past, you filled out something saying my financial situation or our financial situation. If if you're a couple, our financial situation hasn't changed appreciably since we applied. They've rewritten the forms. Lenders have rewritten the forms to specifically ask you, has your income changed as a result of COVID-19? And the next question is, and do you foresee it changing as a result of COVID-19? Like, have you been warned that there are going to be layoffs or there are going to be furloughs or you're going to have to take fewer hours. The point there is to sort of put it in the face of the buyer. If you were thinking you can just gut it out, if you were thinking, well, we have two incomes, maybe the other person's income is going to go ahead and cover this. Don't do that. You actually need to verify by signing these forms that your income is what it was at the time you applied. But it also provides an important layer of protection for the lender. It's just kind of like a second, third, or fourth safety belt for the borrower, just giving you a chance to say, oh yeah, okay, I am okay and can take out this But for the lender, these mortgage executives were telling me, it provides a very important layer of security. We all know that most mortgages get sold off in a second market. There are investors who back your mortgage, and they want to be sure that these mortgages aren't going to go bad shortly after they buy them. In the last financial crisis, there were many people who had loans that were unsustainable. I got a loan without documentation. I got sort of a blind loan. I got very easy 
emergency lending terms got me into a house when I really couldn't afford it. Then comes the crisis. I lose the house. The loan crashes. The house goes into foreclosure. Lenders don't want that to happen again. So what they're saying is, tell me for sure that one, your income hasn't been hit, and two, it appears unlikely to be hit in the near future by COVID. And then I can verify to the investors, this is a loan that's going to be sustainable going forward. And in your reporting for this story, did you find examples of of people kind of getting to the closing table and being confronted with that document and, okay, actually, I, I can't go forward with this? No. So the mortgage executives who talked to me about this said they've seen very little of that. And that's largely because if my income took a hit within the last few weeks, I probably have already realized I got to back out of this loan. I have to cancel my contract. Very few people would actually show up planning to close on the loan in the kind of denial I described or thinking, well, we've got two incomes. We'll just gut it out on the one, that sort of thing. So according to them, very few have, have actually had to make use of this sort of safety valve or this jump seat and get out of the loan. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It just means that the people who are in the business are telling me they haven't had many examples of it. Yeah, hopefully though, you're right. Hopefully people would have backed out prior to that, but we shall see. Yeah, and the one thing to keep in mind is that in the meantime, it does provide that important layer of protection for the lender. It really does cover them much more than it covers the borrower. Okay, I want to shift to another story that you wrote this week about home prices. We've talked so much about that, but what what is the story that March revealed? It was a big jump in prices. So you and I have talked about how in the month, December, January, February, things were really starting to pulse in the Chicago area real estate market. And that was great because we'd had more than a year. We'd had about 16 months of real doldrums. And so strength was building, strength was building in those previous months. And then in March, it was pretty impressive. The median price of a home in Chicago was up over 10% in March from the year before. And in the larger metro area, the nine-county metro area, it was up nearly 8%. Those are the biggest increases in more than two years. And we should say, if you're somebody buying a house, of course, these increases aren't great news. But if you're somebody selling a house, or if you're in a house that isn't for sale, but you're watching its value, these numbers are good because it may mean you're coming up from underwater. Anyway, these were big jumps in prices for the first time in a couple of years. These are sales that closed in March. So generally, they were under contract before the crisis really took hold. We may see something different as time goes by. And the crisis really starts to hang its shadow over the market. But it was pretty good. Home sales were up, not nearly as much as prices were up, but they were just sort of continuing to increase, which also was a break from the past. So it looks like March really was a very strong month, despite that second half going off the rails. The full month data was really impressive. You also broke that down by neighborhood and by suburb. What did that reveal? Uh, a couple of things. So I do this every couple of quarters. And at the end of the year, we look for the neighborhoods in the city and suburbs where three indicators all improved in the course of that quarter. More homes sold at a higher median price and in shorter times on the market. Those three all together sort of indicate, by my measure, a stronger market. There are a lot of places where one or two of those things happened. Prices went up or market time went down. We're, we're looking for the ones where all three improved. And they are few and far between 
because we still had some trouble in our market. In the city, some of the real strength in that first quarter, which of course now is over, was single family homes in Westridge, in Jefferson Park, in Beverly, in Chatham, several other neighborhoods were selling at higher prices, selling faster, more of them selling. This was great news. Most of these are relatively inexpensive neighborhoods or let's say middle class neighborhoods. We didn't see this in Lincoln Park, in Lakeview, in the Gold Coast. In many of those places, homes are selling slower. Prices are coming down because there's an oversupply of homes on the market. The other thing that's happening, not only in those neighborhoods I mentioned, but in the condo market in Irving Park and Portage Park is that people are moving farther out to those neighborhoods to get more square footage to maximize their dollar because the condos in other in neighborhoods closer to the core of the city have gotten more expensive and they go farther out looking for better prices. And looking through this, were any of those neighborhoods surprising or were they kind of already on track to have numbers like this? You know, a couple of them, Beverly has shown up on this list Time and time again, not every quarter, but it seems like every couple of years I'm writing about Beverly getting strong, and that's really good. Beverly had a little bit of a slowdown in 2019, but almost everybody did, and really sort of saw a real hot start to the beginning of 2020. Similar in the suburbs where Oak Park was one of the ones where all three of those things were going well. They had a slowdown that was not only because the market in general was slowing down, but a real estate agent told me for this story and several had told me in the past, there had been some sort of changes in the way schools are graded. And a lot of people go to Oak Park for the great schools. So people started to have a little less confidence that buying in Oak Park was buying in a good school district. That changed in 2019. The rank things changed. The schools rose on the charts, which is not to say that their quality was massively different. It's that the ranking style changed. And so people came back to thinking, I got to get to Oak Park. I want to shift again and talk about a particular house that you wrote about. Uh, it is not, I, I don't think it's very often that we talk about Kanye West on any kind of crane story, but, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> and, and yet here we are. There is a, a story that you wrote recently about Kanye West's childhood home. And it's, it seems like it's been passed around a little bit lately. It has. Kanye West's mother, Donda, who is now deceased, owned the house until the early 2000s. Kanye grew up there from about the age of seven, not really clear when she bought it in the uh, records. But he lived there for much of his childhood. It's thought of as Donda's house. So she sold it in the early 2000s. It went through some trouble. It was foreclosed. And a couple of years ago, an organization called Donda's House, uh, run by Kay Rimefest-Smith, who is a Chicagoan and a former collaborator of Kanye West, and also with Kanye West involved, bought the house. And they said they were going to turn it into an arts incubator. A lot of this was reported at the time by DNA Info, not by us. Um, They were going to create an arts incubator with a Southside Music Museum, recording studios, really sort of a, a cultural center. A little while later, they announced, yeah, we, we're going to build that, but we have to tear down the house to do it. The cost of renovating the house is more than the cost of building new. So that's sort of where the trail ends, is that Rhymefest announced, we're going to tear the house down, we're going to raise a million dollars at the beginning of what we need to build this new cultural center. And the trail kind of ends there in late 2017, early 2018. Well, it came back to life just in the last few weeks when a permit was taken out for renovation of the house. The house was on South Shore Drive and a permit popped up on a permit tracking site that many people know called Chicago Cityscape. 
And so who's renovating this house? Well, I dug into the records and it turns out this was never reported before. We found out Kanye West himself bought the house from the group called Donda's House in late 2018 through a, an LLC, a limited liability company registered in California in his name. This was never announced. And then just now has taken out a permit for about $60,000 in renovation, bought the house for about two twenty five, two hundred and twenty five thousand. So he's got about $285,000 he's planning to spend total construction and renovation, maybe more for the renovation. And this took a little bit of digging because Kanye's name isn't attached to most of the entities. But if you go into the layers of the Secretary of State paperwork in California, you find that Kanye signed some documents related to this house. He is the owner, again, of his childhood home. He is the renovator of his childhood home. What we don't know is what's he going to do with it. I called multiple people, his agent, his publicist, the lawyer to run this limited liability or in whose office this limited liability is company is headquartered. Nobody would tell me anything. So the question is, is he going to renovate it and turn it into a rental house? Is he going to renovate it and sell it, put it back into condition? It's been empty as far as we know for about 10 years. Is he going to renovate it to put it back up for sale? Is he going to put a museum in there? We have no idea. But what we do know is that he's the current owner and renovator of this house on South Shore Drive. Again, it is not often that Kanye West pops up on the residential real estate beat in Chicago, but here we are. So we will. Uh, there we go. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, if he continues with that initial plan of an arts incubator or something like that, or if he makes it residential. You know, I was a little surprised that. So again, nobody would talk to me before the story came out. I was a little surprised that they then didn't get in touch with us and say, "Oh, here's what we're going to do." Because I mean, it's not like Kanye West needs more publicity. He's got a lot of it, but here's something he might he's doing that might be very beneficial to his childhood neighborhood. I was sort of surprised that they didn't call and say, oh, we're going to do the following with it. Well, when they do call, I want to hear about it first. All right. Well, (laughs) thanks so much, Dennis. Have a good one. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Mayor Lightfoot proposes an anti-retaliation law to protect workers during COVID-19. More about that story and others right after this word from our sponsor. Crane's Daily Gist is brought to you by Barnes & Thornburg, a national law firm that believes in providing uncommon value for clients who shape our everyday lives. Barnes & Thornburg, at the heart of business in Chicago, across the nation, and around the world. Online at btlaw.com. For a daily roundup of stories about how the coronavirus outbreak is affecting businesses and the economy, sign up for our free newsletter at chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update. That's all one word, coronavirus update. Also, the paywall has been dropped for all coronavirus stories at chicagobusiness.com, but we encourage you to consider subscribing to support our journalism. And if you receive cranes in print at the office and you're missing it while you're working from home, know that you can always access the electronic edition anytime at Chicago chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. Looking to today's stories, North Chicago drug maker AbbVie has shifted its operations to help Illinois test more people for COVID-19. Cranes has learned that the company is donating about 40,000 units of viral transport media, or VTM, per week to the Illinois Department of Public Health. The material is essential for COVID-19 testing because it maintains specimens until a lab can process them. Governor Pritzker has said that obtaining VTM, swabs, and other raw materials needed for testing has been particularly challenging, but he said last 
last week that universities and vendors have committed to providing necessary items to get Illinois closer to its goal of performing 10,000 tests a day. AbbVie's also transformed one of its own labs to run tests for vulnerable patients, such as people without insurance, and has also donated $35 million to fund 20 international medical corps field hospital units, including two here in Chicago. The company's also announced that it's partnering with health authorities and institutions around the world to test whether its HIV drug, Coletra, is effective in treating COVID-19. It donated a supply of the drug to Chinese health authorities in late January for use as an experimental treatment option. Earlier this afternoon at a press briefing, Governor Pritzker extended his stay-at-home order for another 30 days through the end of May. But he eased up on some restrictions, permitting some forms of outdoor recreation, allowing garden centers to reopen, and indicating that retail stores could resume sales as long as customers picked up purchases curbside. But in another regard, Pritzker also tightened the rules. Starting May 1st, people will be required to wear a face covering or a mask when in a public place where they can't maintain a six-foot physical distance from others. The order initially began in mid-March to help slow the spread of the pandemic. It was initially set to last until April 7th, but on March 31st, Pritzker set a new end date of April 30th. Both Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot have said they see signs that the growth in COVID-related cases and deaths is flattening. But earlier this week, the governor said a peak in COVID cases that some expected this month may not arrive until the middle of May, and that pushes out the timeline. According to the governor's press briefing this afternoon, the state of Illinois has seen an increase of 1,826 reported cases in the state in the last 24 hours, bringing the state total of reported cases to 36,934, including a total of 1,688 fatalities. The Labor Department reported earlier today that another 4.4 million jobless claims were filed in the U.S. last week, pushing the total over the last five weeks to 26.5 million. Most states continued to see initial claims drop on an unadjusted basis, and several states did report decreases in layoffs for the week prior, both signs that job losses could be somewhat slowing. And government aid to small businesses could spur some employers to restore jobs in the months ahead. Governor Pritzker said yesterday that the state has seen a big improvement in handling millions more online filings and calls after recent boosts in capacity. Mayor Lightfoot wants a new ordinance that would bar employers from firing or demoting a worker for staying home from work during the COVID-19 crisis. Lightfoot said in a statement, As I have made clear throughout this crisis, staying home means saving lives. She continued, An employee should never be in a position where they have to choose between staying home with COVID-19 symptoms or their job. And said, This ordinance guarantees that an employer cannot fire an employee for following the directions of public health officials. Under the current public health orders, that includes anyone staying home because they have symptoms of COVID-19, work at a business deemed non-essential by the governor's stay-at-home order, or who've been ordered to quarantine or isolate due to exposure to the virus. And this includes workers who've already used up any earned sick pay. Anyone fired or demoted after public health orders went into effect in mid-March and feel that they've been retaliated against can submit a complaint to the city's Office of Labor Standards. Employers found in violation can be fined up to a thousand bucks per offense per day, and according to the 
the mayor's statement, the ordinance also allows for workers to file wrongful termination suits for up to three times the amount of wages they otherwise would have made. The statement also said that businesses that mistakenly but in good faith believe their conduct follows public health directions wouldn't be fined, and if a business learns about a violation and fixes it within 30 days, they're not liable under the ordinance. As of yesterday, the mayor's office said the Office of Labor Standards has received 34 complaints related to such retaliation against workers since the COVID-19 outbreak began. The ordinance has substantial aldermanic support and has been referred to the Committee on Workforce Development. Until next week, that's all for Crane's Daily Gist. Special thanks to producer Haima Black as well as to today's guest, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher and find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories most on your mind. Thanks so much for listening. Take good care and I'll meet you right back here next week.